Oh, hello. It's Siler here. Uh, I still work at Christ Church. And uh, if you missed it last week, I taught everyone uh, a song that's a way for you to memorize the books of the Old Testament known as the Minor Prophets. And we're going to sing it again. And I want all of you to sing right here together because we, we already, if you, if you didn't hear it last week, it's easy to pick up. So here we go. Here's the song. Do you know the minor prophets, minor prophets, minor prophets? Do you know the minor prophets? There's 12 books. Yes, they sing it. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Great job, everybody. We'll see you next week, and we'll try one more time and see how you did. Well, uh, you may or may not know that in order to graduate uh, from Trinity, you have to pass a Bible competency exam. And um, it asks all kinds of important questions like who is the left-handed judge and uh, you've got to know, you've got to know all these sort of bizarre things. None of which actually helps you do ministry, but you've got to pass it. So you can take it before you start, which I did and I failed it. Uh, then you just know you have to pass this before you're going to get your degree. So one of the things that you learn are the order of the minor prophets because you know you're going to get a question on that. So I can't sing, so I didn't do that, but I I learned a mnemonic device. Had Joel acted obediently, Jonah might never have zapped him, Zechariah mused. And so those line up with the books of the the minor prophets, and one of the important things you know in order to uh, do ministry. By the way, Siler is very disappointed that his videos are not going viral. So if you want to send those to all your friends, that would be great. Well, um, 35 years ago, I ended up on the wrong side of a a practical joke. Uh, In hindsight, I realized I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. Uh, A fraternity brother asked me uh, if I would go with him to the math and science library. And I should have known that something was up. Because where I went to school, libraries had reputations, and you went to the main library, the first floor, if you were just looking for a date, if you just wanted to see friends, you wanted to talk. You weren't there to study. Second floor was a little bit more studying, less talking. Third floor was, was, was studying. It was quiet. You didn't go up there to mess around. And then, but if you were really serious, you went to the math and science library because, I mean, as a rule, no offense to those of you who are physics or chemistry majors, that's not the most raucous crowd. And so people there were there to study, and you only went there if you were serious. And so he asked me if I would take him to the math and science library. I said, okay. And so we went, and there was a long row of carols, study carols. I went to the far end. I sat down in a carol. I started studying. And occasionally I was aware that he was being a little squirrely, and I'd look up at him, and I'm like, you know, dude, what? quiet down. And I was aware that lots of people were looking down at us, and I thought, oh, I'm going to be in trouble. I was a chemistry major at the time. I'm going to be in trouble that I brought this guy who's not studying into the math and science library. Generally, the, you know, the chemists and the physicists didn't like the liberal arts people coming into their library because they weren't real students. They weren't serious about studies. So I thought I was in trouble. I'm not thinking a whole lot about it. And all of a sudden, a note uh, is handed to me. And I look at this note, and it says, Please pass down to Mike Woodruff, the guy in the blue shirt at the far end. And uh, then 
crossed out right next to it is, in, is it says, please pass to the girl in the red sweater at the far end. And so I, I open this note up, and there is a, ostensibly a note written by me to the girl in the red sweater. And it says, hi, my name is Mike Woodruff, but I'm sure you know that because I'm pretty much a big man on campus. And I look at this thing, and I look at my friend, who is now convulsing with laughter, trying not to laugh out loud because we're in the library. And I look up, and of course, everyone is looking at me. I realize everyone has read this note. And uh, it says, uh, the truth is, I'm painfully shy, uh, and I don't get out much. Would you please go on a date with me? Please say yes. All the other girls say no. Uh, And... Tell me your name and give me your phone number. Thanks. So this was passed down. Of course, everybody on the way down read the note. And then it's passed back with her response, which is, Hi, Mike. My name is Natalie. Um, I'm sorry to say I have no idea who you are. And I didn't come to the math and science library looking for a date. Uh, I have a steady boyfriend. I hope things turn around for you. Right. So (laughs) passed all the way back. So sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the windshield, right? We're familiar with that. Uh, That was definitely a bug day. And uh, I share that story because today's topic is pretty serious, and there's not a lot of opportunity for levity. The fact of the matter is, some days you're the bug, and some days you're the windshield, and it's not very funny. And there are lots of people who feel like the bug all the time. And it's not, I'm on the wrong side of a practical joke. It's, my life doesn't work. Like, why can't I catch a break? Like, why can't I get a job? Why can't, uh, why can't I get healthy? Why is my child sick? Why, is, why did my child die? Like, why am I depressed? There's, there's, there's all kinds of very serious questions. And undergirding all of those questions is a deeper question, which is, where is God when I am hurting? Like, why doesn't God answer my prayer? Why doesn't God help me? If God is good and God is loving, why am I struggling the way I'm struggling? Well, this is the question that Habakkuk asks 3,000 years ago. Uh, he is a prophet, one of the 12 minor prophets. He lived uh, and, and ministered in the southern tribes of Judah. So last week we were in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet uh, before the fall of the northern ten tribes called Israel. So the northern ten tribes fell in 722 BC. About 175 years later in 586 BC the southern two tribes of Judah fell to the Babylonians. And uh, Habakkuk is ministering in the 10 years prior to the fall of Babylon. Israel, Judah is in a mess. Uh, There's corruption. There's strife. There's people are ignoring God. Habakkuk is a prophet. He's trying to get the people to come around. They're not coming around. He's very distraught. But instead, in the book of Habakkuk, instead of speaking to the people, which is what prophets do, they are a voice piece for God to the people, but instead of Habakkuk being a collection of the things that, that Habakkuk said to the people, Habakkuk is a book of, of his doubts, an expression of his confusion, his prayer to God 
saying, when are things going to get better? Why don't you answer my prayer? <laughs> like, why don't you do something about all the things that are going wrong in the world? And, um, and it opens, uh, Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 opens with Habakkuk expressing this frustration. Habakkuk 1.1, 1, 1, uh, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2, how long, this is his prayer, how long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you don't save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing. Conflict escalates. So he says, God, how, (laughs) why don't you show up? Why don't you make things right? Why don't you wipe out evil? Why don't you help good people? Why don't you, why don't you act against bad people? How long, God, are you going to be silent in the face of all the troubles that are going on? It's, it's a very important question. It's a question we often ask. It's a question some of you are asking right now. God, when are you going to show up and make things better? So uh, that's verses 1 to, uh, 1 to 4. In verse 5 through uh, 12, I believe, God answers. And what God says is, uh, well, as a matter of fact, Habakkuk, I'm going to show up very soon. And I, am, I, I have heard your prayers. I have been watching. I have been watching as things unfold. And uh, I'm about to do something that you would not believe unless you saw it. And then he says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to exercise justice on the Jews. The Jews have have been going after other gods. The Jews have been ignoring God's law. The Jews have been running in the wrong direction. And he says, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish and judge the Jews. At which point Habakkuk lodges his second question, his second complaint. And he says, (laughs) in essence... Well, how in the world can you justify that? Because the Babylonians are worse than the Jews. The Jews are bad, but the Babylonians are ruthless, wicked, unkind. You cannot partner. You are a holy God. You cannot partner with the Babylonians to exercise justice against the Jews. And he says, so I am going to, um, I, am, I am demanding an answer to this question. This is intolerable. So I am going to climb this tower and, uh, and post a watch for you to show up. I'm going to stand on the wall. I'm going to wait for you to show up. At which point God says uh, in, in chapter 2, okay, well, Habakkuk, get out a pen and paper because I'm about to give you my answer why I'm doing this. So we're going to look at this answer. Before we do, let, let me just step back and make sure that we understand what we are focused on. Historically, this is called the problem of evil. And it gets expressed like, why doesn't God stop evil and suffering? Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And it was uh, sort of classically articulated in its first form by a Greek philosopher named Epicurus in the 5th century B.C. who said, if God is all-powerful, then he could stop evil. If God is all-loving, then he would stop evil. Evil exists, therefore God is either not all-powerful or he's not all-loving. Or the shorthand version of this is, if God is good, he would. 
If he could, he should, but he doesn't, so he isn't. If God is good, he would stop these problems. If he could stop these problems, he should stop these problems. But these problems go on, so he either isn't good or he isn't able. Now, there is a philosophical answer to this, a whole discussion, and we could head down that path, but we're not going to. First of all, because if you are struggling, uh, answers to philosophical questions are cold comfort. If somebody is struggling, even if they ask the question, where is God in this? It's not the time to try and answer that question. If your friends are struggling, people you love are struggling, you don't go to them with answers. You just go to them and you show up and you sit quietly and you say, I'm sorry, and you cry with them and you hug them. And that's, that's the assignment, not to say, I'm going to explain to you why God is doing this or how this works. So the philosophical answers don't really lead us to any sort of comfort. Secondly, I've learned over the years that people that show up at church don't show up for a philosophical lecture. So I'm just simply going to say this. Um, the syllogism breaks down. Right? So the, 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 if, if God is all-powerful, then evil, uh, then he would stop evil. And if he's all-loving, then, then he, he could, he would do this. The syllogism breaks down. All that necessarily follows is that, is, uh, that evil has to have some purpose in God's overall plan. So it breaks down. Secondly, there's... There, there are problems with the problem of evil that everybody shares. Every culture, every society is always trying to help us figure out a way to deal with pain and loss because it is the universal condition. There is pain and suffering in your life or there is pain and suffering coming to your life. And so every society tries to help us understand that. Those in the East generally say, you know, you need to be enlightened. Evil's a little bit of, a, of an illusion. You need to rise above it. There are those uh, that, that talk about the fact that evil can be used for good and that bad things can actually be good for us. Western culture, just for the record, does the worst job of helping people who are suffering. So we live at a time where the basic narrative is that what you see is all you get and so if you're not getting what you need, you're just missing out. The problem of evil, for the record, is a problem for atheists as well as for God. Atheists struggle to answer the problem of good. Like, how do they justify moral outrage? If, if there is no God, then there is no higher standard. So you should expect that people will do whatever they want to do, and the, and the strong will eat the weak. That's a, and, and why could you object to that? Because there is no standard out there. This is Martin Luther King weekend, and, and I, I direct people either to C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, the first chapter, or to Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail. They both articulate this. When King is in prison in Birmingham, he says, look, we all know this is wrong. We all know this injustice is wrong. And we know it's wrong because there is a God, a good God, who has standards, and he has written those on our heart. So the problem of evil, there's a, there's a whole philosophical discussion we could go down. I just want you to know the problem of evil philosophically breaks down, and it, th there's a problem for everybody trying to understand this. I want you to understand what God says to those who are suffering. And the Bible actually comes at this in a variety of different books, in a, a variety of different places. 
It depends initially on how we ask the question. So if we ask, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And we go to this book and we start digging to figure out, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? One of the first things we come to realize is that it's very hard to be definitive on what's bad. Many people will think that something that's happening is bad, and then later on, a month later, five years later, will say, that was actually one of the best things that ever happened to me. Didn't see it at the time. Now, there is evil, and I think we would all agree there are things that are just evil, and God can use evil for good. But there are things that are not evil, they're just bad, but in hindsight, they're good. And we grow. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. It can be a good thing for us. The second thing that we realize when we ask, why, do, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Is that there aren't good people. Right? Romans 3 says, you know, no one's good. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our standard for good is not God's standard for good. We're broken people, morally flawed, selfish, greedy, broken people. When Jesus is asked the question, the problem of evil, Jesus, why did God allow the Tower of Siloam? It's Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Why did God allow this tower to fall and kill 18 people? Jesus' response is to say, wow, do you think those 18 people were worse than you? You should repent. And the implication is that he's not answering the question from the vantage point of why does God allow bad things to happen to good people. He's asking the question, like, why don't bad things happen to bad people? Or why do good things happen to bad people? Because we are broken. We're not good. Additionally, when we, um, when we get into um, asking the question this way, when we go to God and say, God, why are you allowing pain and suffering? Why are you allowing poverty? Why are you allowing injustice? There's a whole lot of the Bible that just turns that question right back around to us. Where God says, yeah, it's a great question. Why are you still allowing injustice? Why are you still allowing poverty? Why are you still allowing people to suffer without coming to their aid. I have given them you. I have empowered you to be my hands and feet. Why do you allow this to go on? Of course, the the two preeminent books when it comes to the problem of evil are the books of Proverbs and Job. And they they answer the, the question a little bit differently. So in Proverbs, we are given a book of counsel, of wisdom, that essentially, if you step back from it, the the assumption is that a lot of the pain and suffering we face are a result of the bad decisions that we make. And that, that we are reaping what we sow. So don't be a fool. Right? That's, that's, be wise. You've got, a, you've got fools in the book of Proverbs. And the fools are those who ignore God's counsel. And in ignoring God's counsel... They reap pain. If you lie, if you cheat, if you steal, if you commit adultery, if you murder, pain is coming your way. You're going to reap what you sow. By and large, it's not a a one-to-one correlation, but by and large, the book of Proverbs is saying this is what will happen. Now, 
in Job, we get a, a slightly different message. And Proverbs sort of sets it up like, you know, you're, you're going you're gonna to suffer if you sin. If you do the right thing, life will likely work better. Job comes along and says, but not always. Right? God's plans and ways are a little bit more mysterious than we can figure out. So in the book of Job, we open with a dialogue between God and Satan in which God says to Satan, Have you considered my, my servant Job? What a good guy. And Satan says, No, he's not. And God says, yes, he is. And Job says, if you allowed me to go after him, he would curse you. And God says, no, he wouldn't. And so, in essence, they sort of place a bet. And you read the book of Job to see how it's going to play out. Will Job curse God? And early on, everything is taken from Job. And, And he is suffering. And you get pulled into the book, because the book is so profound at so many levels. You get pulled into the book, but eventually, as you're reading through, and there's, you know, 30-some chapters, eventually, as you're reading through, hopefully the light bulb goes on, and you go, well, wait a minute. Job is asking the question, God, where are you? Why are you ignoring me? And all of Job's friends are saying, Job, you're suffering because of your sin. You need to repent of your sin. But you realize, no... God is not ignoring Job. He is paying particular attention to Job. He is pleased with Job. He's he's betting his reputation on Job. And Job is not suffering for anything that he's done wrong. And and so you, you realize it's not always clear what is happening. And you go through the whole book and you get to the get to the very end and uh, it's a Job has been calling on God over and over. God, show up. God, justify yourself. God, what are you doing? God, you're not paying attention. And finally, in the end, God shows up. And, and, it, and, and instead, of, instead of Job asking God questions, God starts asking Job questions. And he says, Job, uh, were you around when I created everything? Were you around when I parted the waters and the, and the dry land? Were you around for this? Do you understand any of this, Job? Do you, who are you that are darkening counsel with words without wisdom? And Job says, I, I, I get it. I, am, I get it. I get it. I should not, be, I, I should not expect that I'm always going to understand what your plan is. You are God, and I am not. Now, in the book of Habakkuk, it, it, it's a slightly different ending. So, same thing. Job, the book of Job, Job is calling for God to show up and answer what's going on. In the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk is calling on God to show up and answer what's going on. And uh, he says, it's not right, not fair, not good that you would allow the Babylonians to punish the Jews. You need to justify your actions. And God shows up and says, okay, Habakkuk, sit down, get ready, take notes. I'm going to explain to you what I'm doing. He says, I'm, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish the Jews. But in fact, the Jews will turn. This is not the final word for them. What's, what's going to happen to them is a good thing for them. And then he says, don't worry, I will judge Babylon. Furthermore, he says, I will judge all the Babylons that follow. And, and Habakkuk is, is a, it's sort of a poem. It's, it, it can be difficult language to read. It's a poem of lament and some other things going on there. But there are five sort of woes that, that get expressed. 
God is saying there will be future Babylons, countries, people with power. And when people have power, woe to them because the rich charge uh, onerous interest on the poor. And woe to them because the powerful oppress the, the, the weak. And woe to them because people in leadership begin to uh, eat, drink, and be merry and sleep around and they move towards licentiousness. And woe to them because they, they suffer idolatry. They begin to worship money and other things. So in the book of Habakkuk, there's this pattern that, that God says, this is in place and I will judge every Babylon that comes. And then he says, and this is one of the, the, the high water marks of the book, he says, uh, then I am going to eventually make it right. Verse, chapter 2, verse 14, and he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord's glory as the water covers the sea. I am, going to, I am going to make things right. There will be a day when every tear will be dried. No one will be crying. Everything will be right. I, it's not a consolation prize. I am going to reconstitute things. I am going to rule and reign in a way that works. That is coming. And in, in, in one of the pivot verses in Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, And the just will live by faith. And the message there is, People today who know me will live with the promise that I am going to make things right in the future. The just will live by faith. The the righteous will place their hope in this future deliverance that I promise I am going to give. And so the book of Habakkuk then uh, ends, chapter 3, with Habakkuk saying, Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, in other words, though everything is going wrong in my life, yet I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. So Habakkuk listens to God, and he says, okay, (laughs) I get it. I get it. And I am going to be one of those who chooses to live placing my confidence that you are going to honor your promises and that you will make things right. Now that's not the final word on the problem of evil. There is is more that we could tease out of the book of Habakkuk. I think it's important to note Habakkuk goes to God with his frustration and anger and confusion. And he says, God, where are you? Why don't you show up? And some of you need to go to God with your anger and confusion and frustration. The book of Psalms is full of very earthy, raw cries to God. Why are you not here? What what are you doing? Why do you sleep? So we see God can handle our pain. God can handle our confusion. God can handle our doubt. We go to God with our doubt in prayer. It's also worth noting from the book of Habakkuk, that just because things are going well does not mean we're right with God. Right? Things were going well for the Babylonians. They were not right with God. Just because things are going poorly does not mean that we're wrong with God. Things were going poorly for Job. Right? It's, this is, the problem of evil is a, is a big, confusing problem. We don't always understand what God is doing. But everything gets updated for us in the New Testament when Jesus shows up. And he shows up uh, and to come down and live among us and, and to experience the pain and suffering of a broken world, right? 
We do not have a high priest who does not know our situation, right? He has been tempted in every way as we have and is without sin. And so while we can't always definitively give an answer to what is going on, we, we know that we can rule something out. I am not suffering because God doesn't love me. I'm not suffering because he's not paying attention. I'm not suffering because he doesn't care. He cares. He showed up. He sent his son. Christ died for us. So if you are suffering, if you're frustrated, confused, if you go, my prayers are not being answered, I don't understand what God is doing. I'm sorry. I understand. In this broken world, that will be our experience often. But God loves you. (laughs) He has sent his son. He is paying attention. He hears our prayers. And he has promised that in his timing, he is going to work this out. And he is going to make everything right. And the just, the righteous, will live by faith. Will place their confidence. It's hard right now in this broken world, but I am going to choose to be faithful. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails, though the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pen. Everything is going wrong. I will triumph in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I want to pray. Um, I want to pray for those who are here today, broken, confused, frustrated, angry. I want to pray that. Um, that they would have a, a sense of your love and, and an ability to place trust and confidence that you are a God who keeps his promises and that there will be a day when the glory of the Lord will, will shower the earth, will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. We can look forward to the promise that uh, this world will not remain broken. We will not remain broken. You are going to wipe away every tear. You are going to restore things. Lord, Help us live today in this broken world in light of that promise. Help us live today uh, placing our our hope and our dreams in light of of eternity and the glory that that we will get to see and to share when when you you make it right. We pray for that day. Lord, I also pray for those who, um, who can get caught up sideways in the philosophical conundrums of the problem of evil, may, may, uh, may they also realize and have uh, a, a deep sense of confidence that um, you've got this and that they can put their trust in you. Help us also to be those who see those who are hurting and struggling among us and, and are not like Job's friends, full of quick answers and platitudes, but who stand alongside the hurting and, uh, as we would like people to stand alongside us. Guide us in those directions, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.